Tonight I'd like to talk on metta, equanimity, and emotions. But first, let's enter the realm of myth for a moment. I like this quote from Joseph Campbell. He said, the closest thing we have to planetary mythology is Buddhism. In it, all things are potentially Buddha things. So once the Bodhisattva was born as a banyan deer and lived in the heart of a great forest, but a new human king came to power in this land and he loved nothing more than hunting. So many times during the week, he and a band of hunters would go out and by the end of the day, they'd come back with wagons full of deer and rabbit and boar, pheasant, bear, tigers, lions, monkeys. And they were happy. But many of the people of the land were not happy because the farmers' fields were disturbed and, and merchants were um, unable to do their usual business. So they all got together and they came up with an idea. And that was to build a stockade on the edge of the forest, uh, drive some deer in there, and see if that would satisfy their, their new king's needs for hunting. Well, they did this. The king came and he wasn't all that happy, but he approved. And so then every few days, they'd come and they'd shoot a rain of arrows in this huge stockade. It captured actually two herds of deer. One was the, the herd of the banyan deer. And as the king was surveying the group, the two herds, he saw these two magnificent leaders, one from each herd, and he said, they're unusual looking deer. We will not, sh we'll spare them, we won't shoot them. So again, every few days, a rain of arrows uh, and the delicate deer, they would run in fright, try to get out of the stockade and uh, either be killed or wounded with their hoofs and antlers. The banyan deer, as a great leader, you know, thought, well, as long as there's blue sky, as long as there's the, the greenery of the forest, as long as there's life, there's hope. So he'd wander, wander throughout the herds with his great forked antlers and his uh, uh, beautiful, large brown eyes, and his wet muzzle. And his presence had a calming effect. The radiation of his metta, uh, his stillness, his equanimity. The deer were reassured, but still this reign of terror every few days. So then he went to the other leader and he said, only thing I could come up with is that we, we do a lottery and straws are drawn. And one day, a deer from your herd and then another day, a deer from my herd stand out and in sacrifice offer up their life for the sake of all the rest. So the other leader agreed. And one deer was what was there when the king ne next came with his hunters and thought, 
Noble indeed are these dear and wise to spare so much of the suffering and harm and death by putting only one, having one deer come forward. That day he unstrung his bow and went silently back to the palace. And that night he had, he had powerful lucid dreams of a shining deer streaming through the mind. And one day a pregnant doe chose the straw. Anguish, she went running up to the other leader of the herd and said, I'll gladly give my life once my fawn is, is born. And you spare me. And that leader said, you know, justice demands that, that you go forward. If you don't go forward, who, who else will? You chose the straw. So she went running to the banyan deer, the bodhisattva. And he said, you know, you're right. The terms of, the, of this condition was that only one need die, and you are really two. So you go your way and don't worry. I'll, I'll see that things are taken care of. And happily she went off. Banyan deer again wandered around with his soothing, calming, serene energy. The deer, both herds, again reassured. They knew if there was a way, this great banyan deer would lead them to freedom and safety. The banyan deer said, I have to offer myself. There's nothing else to be done. I am the leader of these people. I am the protector. I cannot choose someone to die in her place. So it was the banyan deer that was there when the hunters came that day without the king. And seeing the deer there, they sent for the king, who came up and said, you've been spared, why are you, why are you standing there? And he said, well, the, the, the doe with her unborn fawn was chosen, and the terms call for only one to die. Uh, and as their leader, I will stand. And the, the king said, you're, you're offering your life to save one member of your herd? Yes, I am. How can a ruler uh, live in peace if he or she doesn't protect all in their realm? But in that moment, the hunter with his habit of killing, habit of, of greed and aggression, Something moved in him. A stone rolled away from his heart. And he said, You're, you've taught me something today. You're right. A leader should protect all, all beings in their realm. And as a gift, I will free you and your herd. You're free to go back into the forest and you will never be harmed. Go in peace. How can I go in peace, said the banyan deer. If we go, all the more suffering on the other herd. Every day, they will have to face this uh, continuous flight of arrows that pierce them, that wound them, that kill them. I can't go in peace. And stunned, the king said, for the sake of, of your, all of your herd, uh, the well-being of them, of this other herd, you sacrifice yourself and your own herd. 
Yes, I would and I will. Said the king, think of the anguish. Think of their suffering. And after pondering some time, the king again said, you are wise indeed. You are right. I will free all of you. You're all free to go. You've again taught me most profound teaching about the interconnectedness of living beings. You are part of the realm that I have the duty to protect. You're all free to go. Go in peace. O oh, great king, your gift is noble. But how can I go in peace? Think of all the other four-legged creatures. The bears and the tigers and the rabbits, leopards. What about the spears and arrows and stones that will pierce them, trap them, kill them? Are they not also in the realm of beings that it is your duty to protect? Amazed, again, the king went inward and felt something deeply moving, vibrating in his heart. And he said, can't believe I'm doing this, but you're, you're, you're teaching me something in a way that I've not known before. From this day forward, all four-legged creatures in my realm are free from pursuit, from the fear of death, from being harmed or captured. And delighted with his deeper realization, the, the human king said, now you can go in peace, O great Banyan deer. And he said, I can. What about the lovely songbirds that send their message every morning when the sun comes up? A message of song, of lightness, of beauty to the ear throughout the forests. What about the nets and spears and arrows and entrapments that will harm them? Are they not too living beings in your realm? I can see you're determined to make farmers and vegetarians of us all, said the king. And once again, you are right. Now can you go in peace? <laughs> and the banyan deer said, well, who will speak for the silent ones of your realm? What about the fish in your streams and lakes and shores? Are they not also living beings? Are they not also subject to your protection, to your compassion? Do you not also see them as beings worthy of life? Tears streaming down his cheeks, the, the human king said, never have I thought this way. Never have I been able to see like this great and compassionate teacher. From this day forth, all living beings in my realm are free from any sort of uh, pursuit and hunting and trapping, shooting. They're all liberated as long as I live and for as many generations as I can influence. And I humbly bow to you, my great teacher. 
Now can you go in peace? <laughs> and tears trickling down his own cheeks, the, the Bodhisattva banyan deer lit up with delight and jumped with joy and then led his herd back again into the, the heart of the great forest, living in peace. How can metta and equanimity in the context of our mindfulness practice lead us to protect our realm, our inner realm, and all that's within our reach? How can we work with the challenges of our emotional body, our emotional life? It's fortunate that we have this particular lineage of of teaching, this wisdom tradition, because by nature it draws forth a way of viewing the world through the lens of, of metta, responding with this great kindness and the courage and fearlessness that it brings. And the very nature of mindfulness practice draws this serene balance of mind we call equanimity, the ability to be in the midst of things as they are, without reacting, without indifference. This is the fruit of every moment of pure awareness, those moments when there's no wanting in the mind. There's no fear or hatred. There's no delusion of self centeredness in the mind. In fact, mindfulness works like a, a magnet drawing many associated skillful states. And a particular use to our practice here uh, is the, the cohesive nature of metta and the balancing nature of equanimity. Because metta provides a needed spaciousness to allow emotions, the most powerfully pleasant ones and the most powerfully painful ones. And equanimity is the capacity to uh, accept in the moment that those particular emotions are present. As well, this is a, a training in a way of being, a way of living. Living in, with a response to life, to experience uh, of metta and this equanimity. So how, how do we experience emotions? So far we've been uh, focusing on an anchor. And really the anchor Really, the anchor is the present moment. As we stabilize the mind through the breath, through the body, the anchor is always the present moment. And we've added to that sensations of the body and thoughts this morning. Emotions and, e -mental, and mental states uh, are a... Are 
an entire part of our life. We always uh, experience some mental mood in every moment. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. Particular emotion in the moment is uh, a layered experience. That is, it has different aspects of it. There's the, the thought form part. It is the story or narrative that we may see, that we may recognize. Then there's the actual mental mood, the mental state behind it. Delight, happiness, fear, friendliness, restlessness, calm, joy, sorrow. Then there are sensations in the body, which particularly with the strong emotions, uh, cor uh, correlate with physical um, sensations. Somewhere in the body, a tightness connected with uh, a mental mood of tension or a, <coughs> a feeling of burning somewhere in relation to anger or an oppression over the whole body connected with, um, with loneliness. And then there's the level of a feeling tone. Every emotion having the, the quality of either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So there's a whole field to explore if we can create the, the meta-compassion space to allow the emotion to be there. And that often means the recognition, the awareness of resistance. We're really conditioned to resist powerful emotions, even really powerfully pleasant ones. There can be a judgment there, feelings of unworthiness there, or that we don't deserve it, or guilt. Many ways to resist an, an emotion, either a pleasant uh, and, a, and skillful one or, uh, or an unskillful one or a, a painful emotion. All emotions and all these component parts arise only for a moment. That is the thought, the mood, the sensations connected with the mood, the feeling. They're all there for a fleeting moment conditioned, impermanent, and not self. The conditions may prevail through habit, through learned patterns, through memory, some trigger of a sight, a scent, a thought, trauma. So those conditions may prevail so there seems to be a continual run of that narrative in the mental states and emotions, thus the sensations and so forth. But as we start to learn how to um, see into these layers, when we really learn with the metta-compassion to hold the moment in acceptance and allow the wisdom and insight of mindful equanimity into it, we see their momentary nature, their empty nature. Neither the thought, the mood, the sensation, nor the feeling refer back to anyone. 
They're all there by conditions, by natural law. They all have a particular function in the moment. With friendliness, we feel connected. With, with fear, we feel separate. Loneliness makes us feel isolated. The, the unconditional surround of, of, of tender-heartedness allows us to experience for ourselves these emotions and learn how to um, overcome the conditioning to distance ourselves through our habits, through repetitive thinking, through fantasy. Metta breaks through that, the, the, the power of fearlessness that is the nature of metta breaks through a lot of our habit because so many of our habits and patterns were created in the first place as a protection. But in our spiritual growth, they kind of outlived their, their function. That is, they developed before we had the wisdom and compassion to use a greater force of protection. That is, metta. And the other brahma-viharas, compassion, joy, equanimity. So quite naturally, as, the, as we allow this, this, these conditions to grow from within us, because they do live in the innate nature of mind, they automatically begin to replace these more unproductive habits, ways of protecting ourselves, so that we can genuinely and fully feel an emotion in the present moment. When I was first practicing in, in Burma about 20 years ago as, as a monk, I remember going through a period, several weeks, of loneliness, you know, feeling cut off from custom, um, familiarity, food, uh, the surround of friends and everything I was used to. And I also noticed uh, groups of fellow monks who once or twice a day would gather and, and talk. You know, and I'd feel the temptation, I'd feel the, the, the pull to connect with them. And the fact that they were meeting in these for a short while, making this connection, made me feel all the more lonely and isolated. But I knew, I knew my mind enough to know that the, that the connection would be a greater strategy of distraction than learning to deal with the loneliness. And I got that support from, from the, my teacher, who I saw uh, every couple of days. And I rep I'd report to him these feelings of loneliness. And, and he, through his presence, you know, would provide, as I could not at the moment, this sense of acceptance, this metta equanimity, that because I felt his acceptance slowly allowed me, you know, to feel that I could feel these these feelings of loneliness without having to do anything to make to make the feeling go away. It wasn't about uh, feeling unlonely, pushing the loneliness away. 
And so I could go into those layers. I could go into the story I was making around the loneliness, around the other monks, about home and friends and food, and let go of the story, feel the mood, mental mood, sensations in my uh, mental stream, and then in my body as well. Various places that seem numb in my body connected to that loneliness and the unpleasantness of it. And then gradually, when I could feel these pieces of the loneliness, I could hold the, the changing mental states and actually see them as changing mental states, not identify with this flow of lonely thoughts, lonely moods, lonely sensations in the body. We are the only ones who can feel our own pain. You know, we can't really go somewhere else to make it okay. We may get a temporary relief or sense of alleviation from some external source or person or teaching, but ultimately it's we that has to experience ourselves, uh, our, our feelings, our emotions, our loneliness in this case and to overcome the, the learned resistance. Metta provides that empathic response to emotions, to loneliness, fear, anger, violence even. Equanimity is just being still with arising experience. Just being still in the moment. It is recognizing when we do react. Reaction is a form of resistance. Reacting to pleasant by grasping, reacting to unpleasant emotions, by pushing away fear. And these we have to open to. This is how we know in a moment whether we're equanimous or not. Is the mind being reactive? We bring our awareness, our mindfulness, into the moment and see. And notice the reactive mind. The longer we can sustain the mindfulness, the more that empathic uh, space or response of metta, and more the stillness, that centeredness in the, in the midst of that emotion. That stillness of equanimity also allows for a um, the skillful restraint that sidesteps our habits of fantasy, repression, indulgence, indifference. You know, so restraint means recognizing the impulse to go into our fantasies, to push experience away, to get caught in repetitive thinking. So it's, it's a skillful restraint pulling back from that just allowing ourselves, okay, it's okay to just feel this moment. A friend, an Australian, a Burmese friend who's been living in Australia now for 20 years, he was a captain in the Burmese army uh, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, 
fighting on the borderlands. Burma, they've been fighting in the hill countries for 50 years. So he was a captain in the Burmese army. And over a couple of decades, you learn the habit of aggression, violence, killing. Uh, treasured that feel of holding the rifle, the pistol in his hands, leading his uh, company into battle, doing pretty much what they wanted, wherever they wanted. And at one time they came to a, by a certain village in the hill country, and they saw these wild ad- you know, animals, pheasants and wild chickens and some deer, and they just started shooting for food. And this, this woman came out of the village, an elder. She walked right up to the leader, to the captain, with this uh, ferocious yet gentle presence, tuning in to the captain's pain, but clearly protective of her realm, like the banyan deer. She said, my son, we do not kill living beings in this area. You're welcome to our village. You may eat our food. But living beings here are protected from hunting and death. Like the human king in the Banyan Deer story, something turned in this Burmese soldier. Something let go. You know, he, he, he softened. And not too long later, he, he left the army. And he went into a monastery and meditated. And his life for 20 years has been around the Dharma. Something transformed in a single moment, at a single right time, at the presence of someone like the banyan deer, who is willing to even offer her own life in a fearless stance to protect uh, living beings. The human king in the banyan deer story, as you notice, uh, there were moments of transformation. You know, he would see something, sort of relinquish his hold, greed of aggression, delusion, you know, and then hit another layer and then relinquish and then another, you know, until his sense of connection was unconditional. The wisdom of his understanding was thorough. And through the uh, insight, equanimity, he changed his life and affected all the beings in his, in his realm. Happens in a moment. Something as simple as working with uh, torpor, sloth and torpor, you know, sleepiness or fogginess of mind. Uh, a yogi told me this morning that he was sitting, nodding out for 45 minutes, sort of sitting in this drapery of torpor and wondering, well, should I be doing this? What's, is it productive? Every few moments, there'd 
well, I mean, maybe every few minutes, there was a moment of recognition of the torpor. You know, an awake moment, and then again, 45 minutes. And he said then, in a single moment, torpor was gone. He saw it just as a thought form, as a mind state. And because of whatever conditions, low energy or um, too much striving or whatever it might have been, the conditions were repetitive. So there were many, many moments of torpor. But they weren't unbroken. And finally the conditions were there and it fell away entirely. No more torpor. Metta and equanimity come together a lot in the recent years of watching my mom age. She's 91. And um, the, the meta part, of, co- you know, of course, is just the, the empathy and acceptance of her changes, accepting the diminished mental capacities and you know, her shrunken world. Uh, figuratively and literally, you know, she has a, her larger garden is now just a small little space where she goes, spends her time. But her perceptions change, her cognition. So it's required a lot of equanimity of Michelle and I, you know, because sometimes she just repeatedly says something that's not true. You know, for example, earlier this year, you might have been aware of the, the Japanese student training boat that sank uh, after being hit by a Navy submarine. And that was about 10 miles south of, of Oahu. Uh, and of course, that, that affected her like these things do. You know, she'd see boats out in front her house, half mile or so, less, quarter of a mile, half a mile, but she'd see boats. And no matter how many times we'd say otherwise, she'd say, well, that's where it sank. In the beginning, it was, Mom, actually, it's more to the southwest, and it's way out beyond sight there. It's 10 miles out there. Oh, but then a little while later, you know, she'd see some boats and, you know, that's where that boat sank. And in the evening, there'd be lights, fishing lights, fishing boats out there. And she's there, they're still trying to pull up that boat. You know, so after a while, the easiest thing is to agree. <laughs> yes, that's what I meant to say, Mom. <laughs> it's right there. <laughs> because her whole world has changed. What does it matter? where something is, you know, the disorder of facts, it doesn't. And the capacity to still feel the intimacy is just in that empathic space and the equanimity of not needing things to be so ordered. It's more childlike, and that's how aging works.
the experience of emotions are deeply healing. There's a healing force in practice of awareness and of emotions. Deeply transformative. Uh, and the ability to harness the energy of certain strong emotions for our practice, for the benefit of our practice. There's no particular state that we're trying to attain. We're not trying to get to a place of equanimity, to a place of unconditional love. Those forces are already here in every moment of mindfulness. So we come up against great states of delight, uh, really difficult states of pain, or moderate emotions. All of them have a healing capacity when we're really present, feeling them. And we can see and move beyond the story. That's an important layer to disidentify with in the beginning. We can't really feel the emotion, the mood, the mental state, as long as there's still a story revolving about it, as long as there's some narrative even if it's true. And even if the story we have about it seems factual you know, or true on some level, it's still a, a kind of resistance or a defense against really feeling the emotion. And feeling is healing. Feeling mindfully with metta and equanimity is healing. So to get into the mood and feel through the body and the feeling tone, we have to see the story and let go. Now, it's true that sometimes the story can lift an emotion, a mental mood. But then it can really serve its purpose. So we notice seeing, thinking, story, fantasizing, whatever, and trust that ability to let go and just feel the feeling. Many of our very deepest emotions of both joy and sorrow are preconceptual anyway. The force of them, of their condition, returns in recurrent stories through our life. You know, so that uh, anger finds a new scenario throughout time. Grief, a different scenario throughout time and sorrow, and joy. But to feel them free of the scenario of the story can take the awareness and the healing back before we were conceptual. You know, the first 16 to 20 months of our life in this life are pre-life emotions. This year, I... Uh, was able to return to Burma for the first time in four and a half years. And, and I taught the retreat that Michelle has been teaching the last three, four years in January. And then went back in March and April for a, a personal self-retreat. And I went far away you know, to a real isolated place where I could be contacted in an emergency, but, but basically was cut off from... Anybody I knew. I didn't know anybody. 
Um, and I had no real expectation for what was going to happen on the retreat. retreat. Uh, but I didn't expect what happened <laughs> either. So when I started to sit, it was like picking up. Because um, I really haven't had the time for any long sitting for, for four and a half years. Uh, and one of the first things that came up was four and a half years ago, uh, my dad died. Um, and within a couple of weeks of his death, and I had sort of tended to him for eight months. It was a lot of very intimate uh, healing closeness and privilege of service in that time. Uh, but within a couple of weeks of his passing, I was teaching this first retreat in Upper Burma with the, the abbot of the monastery there, and then came away with numerous projects, too, in Burma and the Hawaii Center and uh, a new project in America, uh, bringing practice into um, mainstream institutions here. All compelling and great, uh, but I was hit, sort of hit the ground running every day. And so there was some way in which the grief, or feeling the grief, was cut off. And so I didn't really expect it. I just started my practice. And overwhelming feelings, you know, from like a bone-deep weeping would come up. Uh, and, I, and I felt it very connected to my dad and his passing. And I felt... Whatever it is that happens between a parent and the child when the parent ages and grows old and there's some sense of passing a torch, passing the torch of the lineage of our ancestor, matrilineal and both our mothers and our fathers, something that comes through. you know, and I was—I felt I realized that I've sort of missed his uh, the, his firm grasp, and that I was still receiving something. And the gratitude that allows that came hand in hand with feeling the grief. So that happened a lot uh, in that retreat, month-long retreat, and then it went a layer deeper. And then the story about my dad and the story period, about any grief, kind of gave way to more of an existential grief sense of loss. And that, too, became, for me, really opening, really healing. You know, I felt without skin, quite uh, and raw, uh, and really had to rely on the, the power of metta as a protection and the equanimity to, to stay with this quality of grief that had no story, to see where it, where it would where it take me. And these very pre-verbal, pre-symbolic, pre-conceptual um, places of mind. That's just pure, the pure energy of the emotion. We have in our practice a pressing task to find alternatives to to um, acting on or suppressing our habits. You know, the, the actions, mental or vocal or 
physical, that issue from emotions. Because they color, certainly, they color the way that we think. They color um, the practice of our emotional exchange with the world and how we hold our bodies. They, they certainly uh, shape the way we regard and actually experience our bodies. So to learn this capacity to open to, to feel, to empathize with any emotion, and to be able to be still, not either act on, indulge, repress, any kind of emotion. Those lead to healing. My dad used to meet us at the airport when we came home from travels. And uh, about seven years ago, he met us in the in our new car. It's the first new car, only new car we've ever bought. And he came driving up and got out and um, greeted me and then greeted Michelle. And he had a baggage cart which he was holding on and he let go of it to give Michelle a full body hug. And the baggage cart started to roll down to our car. I had an emotional response in the moment of impact. <laughs> it put a dent in it. And he looked around and he says, oh, well now you always have something to remember me by. That was his response. And I didn't quite take it in then. <laughs> but I recalled it uh, earlier this year and understand it now the way we're, we're working with our experience. That something that appears as a flaw actually transforms into a symbol of, of love and gratitude. This is what we're doing here. Creating this space of empathy and understanding, of care and non-attachment, of metta and equanimity. Let's sit together for a moment. May we continue our practice of opening to all of our experience with metta and compassion. And may the the wisdom of equanimity allow us to let go of control, of attachment to results, so that emotions themselves lead us to enlightenment. 